I'll have you know, Elder Brendel, I'm uh, twice as old <laughs> as your joke. Um, but it's actually a good point to make on a minor point. As I mentioned last week, uh, I'm thankful to the elders of this church for giving me the opportunity to preach, because I have no authority inherent of myself, only that which is given to me by the elders of this church. Um, not even technically a pastor. I'm a pastoral intern, so, but minutia. Thank you. I'm blessed with this opportunity. The word I'll be preaching from today is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. I invite you to look that up in your Bibles real quick as I read to us the word of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. The Lord speaking through Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, is one of the central, if not the central teaching of the New Testament. Jesus is coming back. And often people, when they deal with this reality in the scriptures, they usually react in one of two ways. One is, on the one hand, many people tend to have an endless fascination with the, the when and the how and the details and trying to figure out exactly what's going to go on when Jesus returns. Or, on the other hand, many people react to the reality of Jesus coming back and all of the difficult texts that talk about that with a more apathetic attitude, kind of a well, we're never going to know everything, so I'm just, I'm just not going to deal with it. Both of these mindsets, the overfixation and the lax perspective, have the tendency to go wrong. Because our passage today forces us not only to grapple with aspects and details of Jesus' return, but also while pointing us to the center of the text, which is the moral implication of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Peter brings all these things up about Jesus' return for one ultimate purpose. It must change the way you and I live. It must. And this is what the false teachers in 2 Peter, which I've talked about every single week, this is what they were forgetting. They were forgetting that Jesus was coming back, very actively so. And their bad morality was due to their disbelief in that fact. And on the other hand, our good morals should be as the result that we have a fervent, strong belief that our Savior is coming back. Let me pray for us as we dive into the Lord's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us. Lord, as we're here this morning, surely we have many distractions, many things on our mind, many worries, and I pray that you would help us to cast those aside Lord, give us open ears and soft hearts and a steady mind to listen to your word. Lord, I pray that we may contemplate in the depths of our heart the truth of the fact that Jesus Christ 
is coming back and we will see him face to face, either as Savior or as judge. Lord, please speak through me and may everyone hear your words and not mine. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So in studying the new heavens and the new earth, we will see in this passage three aspects, three things. In verse 10, we will see that the new heavens and the new earth will be as the day of the Lord. In verse 11 through the first half of 12, we'll see that the new heavens and the new earth mandates holiness. And lastly, we will see in the second half of 12 through 13 that the new heavens and the new earth will be radically different than the world as we know it today. We'll start off in verse 10. Let me reread it for us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. We see here that the coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, will be as the day of the Lord. So, natural question. What what is the day of the Lord? Well, this phrase, it comes straight from the Old Testament, which is why we all need to be enriched with a study of the Old Testament scriptures. Because in the Old Testament, for Old Testament Israel, the day of the Lord was a prophetic term that was often used to speak about the destruction of Jerusalem and the invasion of Israel by foreign powers. But they were also teaching and talking about future events as well. For instance, in the book of Joel, the minor prophet, this phrase, the day of the Lord, happens five times. And the first three times, it's talking about a coming judgment for God's people. The fourth time, it's talking about further judgment upon God's people, but also a chance for salvation. This is where that famous verse, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the fifth instance of the day of the Lord in the book of Joel describes a judgment not on God's people, but on God's enemies and his salvation for his people. So once again, what is the day of the Lord? It's many things. It's many things. If you ever want to do a fascinating study, pull out your Bible or your phone and just type in day of the Lord and read all the Old Testament passages that mention it. So, So what is it? Is it the destruction of Jerusalem? Yes. Is it the cross and Pentecost? Yes. Is the day of the Lord the coming of Christ? Yes. Right? Welcome to Christ Reform. You're going to just get more confused. The day of the Lord is a very pregnant phrase. It has multiple meanings. Um, I I heard one time this way of understanding Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Old Testament prophecy and prophecy in the Bible, in a lot of ways, is like you're looking at a mountain range from a distance. Have you ever been to Colorado and you look at the Rockies from a distance? And it just, tons of mountains. And you have no idea which ones are close, which ones are far. It kind of looks like a flat line. But as you go nearer, you can begin to discern, oh, that peak is closer than I thought it was. And that peak is actually further than I thought it was. And in many ways, when you're trying to gauge what does the day of the Lord mean, it's like that. You're staring at this mountain range. As, As we get closer to the time of Christ, we see that some instances of the day of the Lord are sooner and some are further So Peter here is talking about the last day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment and mercy, a day of destruction and renewal, a day of darkness and light, a day of salvation and condemnation, 
Also notice in verse 12, later on in our passage, the same thing is called the day of God. And in 1 Corinthians, it's actually called the day of Christ. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's even just called the day for shorthand. Once you look for it, you'll actually see it a lot. The phrase, the day. Looking towards the coming of Jesus. So why does Peter focus upon the day of the Lord? I think he's trying to teach us two aspects of the day of Christ's return. Aspect number one, it will come like a thief. Aspect number two, it will be a day of judgment. So he uses this phrase, like a thief, which is interesting to us. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament came about in God's timing. Israel, they, they could guess, they could look at what was going on in the nations, but they really didn't know when things were going to happen. And the same is now. Throughout history, perhaps no other topic has fascinated theologians or conspiracy theorists more than the when Jesus is coming back. How many of you have heard at some point in life of a book or a person, or some kind of prophecy of some person saying, I figured it out. I know exactly when Jesus is coming back. And guess what? I've never heard one that's right. And I think according to this passage, we never will. No one ever knows when they're going to get robbed. Because if you did, you wouldn't have been robbed. And that's the language that Peter is using it. Funny enough, again and again, the Lord talks about this. The unpredictability of Jesus' return. Let me... Read us a passage. You'd do well to turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 36. Jesus talks about this very metaphor. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, <clears throat> But concerning that day, day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Skip down to verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. Why? For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's almost as if Jesus knew how much people were going to try to figure it out. And again and again and again, he's saying, you won't. It's deliberately a part of the plan of the Lord that the return of Christ remain a secret. And we as the people of God need to be content with that. That doesn't mean that we don't study the text that we've been given and try to figure out what it's saying, but it does mean that we should be we should be marked by a spirit of contentedness in our lack of knowledge. As I said, I, I have never personally been robbed, um, but I've talked to people who have. And no one ever knows when the robbery is coming. It is an unwelcome and an unexpected visitor. So I think we must live in constant expectation of Christ to come in any moment, but never be disappointed when he doesn't, because his timing is best. We must live in constant expectation of Christ to come in any moment, but never disappointed when he does not, because he knows best. So this day of the Lord will come, on the one hand, as a thief, but it also will be a day of judgment. Notice for me how difficult this language is in this passage. 
language of fire and destruction, the dissolution of the universe. And this kind of language is usually connected with the day of the Lord, especially in the Old Testament. These are difficult verses. So as we try to understand them, let's start by going further back in chapter 3. Look upwards to verse 5. I'll read from 5 to 7. Peter's saying, For they, the false teachers, those who deny that Jesus is coming back, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This word right here, that being stored up for fire, it's the same word when Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So it's the idea that the, the heavens are kind of ready for God's judgment, in a sense. So Peter compares the judgment to come when Christ returns to the flood in Noah's day as the nearest thing for us to comprehend what it will be like. We will deal with some of the more details of this later in the sermon. But rest assured, when Christ comes again, it will truly be a terrifying event. A terrifying event. The world as we know it will completely change. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Why does Peter drive this home with such stark language? It's a question I was asking myself this week. And here's what I think. I think last week we studied the richness of God's long-suffering and his patience and his mercy. So he opens his hands in the gospel towards all people. And this week, it's as if Peter is saying, yes, God's mercy is rich. And yes, God's kindness is rich gigantic, and his long-suffering seems never-ending, but it is not infinite. God's patience for the world will come to an end. There will be a time of judgment. This is what Peter's saying. A day of judgment is coming. It's just like we sang in that lovely minor song that I found in the hymnal. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks, prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? And I think here, Peter's particularly talking to the false teachers that he has in mind. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to come to Christ. So we see in verse 10 that the new heavens and the new earth will come in as the day of the Lord. It will be a day of judgment. This is what Peter is focusing on. But now that the next verse and a half show us that the new heavens and the new earth, the reality of their coming, mandates holiness now. Mandates holiness now. Let me read verse 11, the first half of 12. Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening The coming of the day of God. As a pattern, usually when the New Testament talks about Jesus' return, it is for the point of getting Christians to live more obedient lives. For for you kids in the room, it's a lot like whenever your mom says, you might be disobedient now, but your dad's coming back. Anyone ever heard that? I did growing up. 
Because certainty of a future event must change the way you live now. As an example of this, I remember back in 2005, I think, yeah, 2005, my dad was beginning to apply for a, a new position at a commercial airline. And he had tons of interviews lined up. And in his, in his mind, he says, I have a new job coming up. I don't have it yet, but I'm going to get one. And it changed the way he lived. He acted differently. He drove much more carefully. I remember that. Um, and he acted like he was going to get this job even before he did. Because the certainty of what was to come changed the way that he lived. And how much more should the certainty of the return of Jesus, our Savior, change the way you and I live now? How much more? This word in verse 11, um, ought, could also be translated as necessary. What sort of people is it necessary for you to be? Because this is true, you need to be more holy. This is Peter, basically the main point of this whole passage. You must strive to look more like Jesus because he's coming back. And there is a personal effort involved with this, an active participation with the Holy Spirit. This is not just some passive thing that will happen to you. And Peter uses four words, we're going to dive into each one, four different words to describe this to us. Holiness, godliness, waiting, and eagerness. Let's walk through each one of these. So he says, what sort of people ought you to be, firstly, in lives of holiness? The church of God, though never perfect, must be marked by holy lives. This basically means, because Christ is coming, the church must look different from the world. Almost like a, a, light, a, a lamp shining in a dark room. There's a stark difference between the two. There should be a visible separation in the way that you and I live, talk, use our words, spend our time, think about money, think about politics, deal with loss, deal with death, sickness. We should look differently in how we love our spouses and how we raise our children. And how we spend our time and how we spend our Sundays. There should be a visible difference of the holiness of God's church versus the rest of the world. The author of Hebrews says this very starkly in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, pursue peace and holiness without which you will not see the Lord. That's pretty powerful. That's the, that's the push that we should feel in our souls. To strive to look like Christ. God didn't save you so that you may never change. Just like he saved Israel from Egypt so that they would serve and worship him, he saved you and me to be image bearers of Christ and to be daily transformed into the image of our Savior. So here's some questions for you to ponder in your heart about holiness. <clears throat> in what ways do you blend in with the world around you? As a parent, do you take your cues for parenting from God's word or the world? As a kid, what influences your mind more? YouTube, TikTok, social media, other people's thoughts, or the scriptures, or your parents? For, everyone, for other people, does, when you react with disease or death or the aging of your body, the world often reacts to that with fear 
and trembling. Is that how you react to such things? Does success in your work or your job or your vocation define you? Or does the love of Christ, your status as a Christian, define you? Are there sins in your life that rule you? Or does Christ rule over you? And one question that should get us all. How often do you ponder the return of Jesus? That convicted me this week as I was preparing. May God help us to kill sin and grow in holiness. So Peter says we should be marked off in lives of holiness, but also godliness. This word could also mean piety, but I don't hear the young kids on the streets talking about piety much any day, so we're going to stick with godliness. And here's one way to understand this. If, if holiness means a visible separation from the world, godliness means looking like Jesus. Because you can be different from the world and yet not look like Jesus. And Peter uses this word, actually, all the way back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you will, turn over there. This, 2 Peter begins with a beautiful list of traits of what it means to grow in being a Christian. A continuum, if you will, of things that we always may grow in. Let me start in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For this reason, because you're, you're a Christian, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Same word. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. In essence, godliness means don't ever be satisfied with where you're at. Just as we sang one of my favorite songs. I say that about a lot of songs. But one of my favorite songs, More Love to Thee, O Christ. We don't sing, God, may I love you just as much in ten years. No, we say, More Love for Thee, O Christ. We should be praying that we may be changed into His image. We should be praying that we would come to love church more. Love God's Word more. Love spiritual things more. May we learn to love Bible studies. Not have to be forced to them, but go because we love it. We love being fed in our souls. May we learn to love coming to church, talking about God with others. Just as another reminder, all of these words are not singular. They're all plural, which means, in, in, a, in a sense, we are not just to pursue holiness and godliness individually, but corporately, as a church. And that's a beautiful thing to think about. Say, like, one of you might be doing really well, but that's not the question God is asking. He's asking, how are you helping your brother in Christ pursue Jesus more? Or perhaps you're not doing well. Maybe you're struggling in holiness. The question is, perhaps you need a brother and sister in Christ to help you in that desire for holiness. That's the beauty of communally working together to image Jesus. And just as an encouragement, this is such a godly church. Ever since Sarah and I came here um, years ago as students, we were blessed by endless acts of kindness, services, people talking to us, giving us food. I remember one time I had the flu when I was a sophomore in, yeah, I was a sophomore, 
And Nancy Campbell brought me a bowl of soup and dropped it off at my dorm room. And I was starving. And I didn't even ask for it. I don't even know how she knew I had the flu. She just knew. All that to say, this really is a godly church. And I've been blessed by that, and many people have. But there's still room to grow. May we never be content with where we're at. May we always be forgetting what is behind and striving for Christ. To see him. The third word right here is waiting. Waiting for. A constant active participation, sorry, anticipation should describe Christians. For some personal reading, I've been reading through the prophet Jeremiah lately. And Jeremiah 32 has this fascinating story. And I'll tell you all real quick. You don't need to turn there. but In Jeremiah 32, he is this beleaguered prophet in the city of Jerusalem that is surrounded by the armies of the enemy. Completely surrounded. Everyone's stuck. They know they're about to get taken. And Jeremiah is being the bad guy by preaching to everybody like, hey, guess what? We're going to lose. Because that's what God told him to say. And in Jeremiah 32, the Lord speaks to him and says, Jeremiah... I am your God, I am faithful, and you will, even though you're going to go in exile, you're going to come back. This city is going to be destroyed, but you're going to live in it again someday. And to prove it to other people, I want you to go buy a property right now when the city's under siege and property values are like zero. And so he does it. He goes and buys a piece of land in Jerusalem and puts it in a pot, the deed, because he was that sure that God's promises were true. And I think, in a, really, in a way, this is what it needs to look like for Christians to wait for Christ to return. We need to be marked by radical decisions, things that look radical from the world, that showcase our certainty that Jesus is coming back. Things that make people ask us, why do you give so much money to church and to missionaries? Because Jesus is coming back, and his gospel needs to go forth. Why do you spend so much time doing church things and going to Bible studies? There's way more fun things to do because my Savior's coming back and I need to be reminded. Why do you put forth so much effort and money to make sure your kids get a Christian education? Because Jesus is coming back and I want to be found faithful. Why do you, as a church, love the elderly or the weak or the unborn? Because Jesus is coming back. And life is precious to him, so it's precious to me. This is what it should mean for us to wait for Christ. For there to be a visible anticipation. The last word that Peter uses here um, in the ESV and the NASB, it says hastening. Um, Hastening the day of God. I, I prefer a different translation. One that maybe says being eager. Because this is the same word that Peter uses in chapter 1, where he says, make every effort, kind of an eagerness and earnestness. So opposite to waiting patiently, in a sense, we also need to be extraordinarily eager. We can't wait for Jesus to return. We can't wait to see our Savior again. And that is a balance we need to keep. Endless patience, and yet constant eagerness. So the coming of Jesus mandates holiness. But then the last verse and a half also shows us the new heavens and the new earth will be radically different than the world as we know it today. Let me read 12b through 13 again. 
So Peter says we need to live holy lives because of which uh, the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So many, many times in the New Testament when it talks about the world to come, the New Testament writers focus on the renewal, the aspects that will be similar, and Peter does the exact opposite. He's talking about the sheer discontinuity between the world that you and I know now and the new heavens and the new earth. So in, in the previous part of chapter 3, Peter used the flood during Noah's day as the closest example for us to grasp what this change will be like. Peter said that that world was destroyed. It perished. But we also know that even though it was destroyed and perished, many things stayed the same. Like the world was still the world. It was just drowned. But then again, a lot had changed. The fountains of the deep Genesis tells us, spewed forth for 40 days, and the continents looked radically different afterwards, and the earth was utterly drowned. So a lot of things were similar, but then, then, then again, a lot of things changed. And this is a healthy paradigm to look at the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a complete destruction, in a sense, and a, and a renewal, in a sense. There will be radical discontinuity, but also elements of continuity. But our passage today talks very heavily about the former, the radical discontinuity. So we're going to have two aspects to this last point. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth will come through a fiery destruction, but then there will also be a righteous renewal. So a fiery destruction. There's a lot of mentions of fire in this third chapter of Second Peter. You can't really run away from it. I didn't count them up, but it says it a lot. More than anywhere else in the New Testament, to my knowledge. It says it in the first part of chapter 3, it says it in verse um, 10, and it says several times again in verse 12. And Peter's not getting this idea of God's judgment being marked by fire out of nowhere. Let me read a couple passages that describe to us the judgment of God, the final judgment, as being marked by fire. Isaiah chapter 66. Verses, I'll start in verse 12. After the Lord speaks kindly to his people, he says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's, it's terrifying. Even Jesus mentions the reality of fire marking the last day. For instance, Matthew 5, verse 22. When talking about the sin of anger, he says, Anybody who says to his brother, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. Peter, in his first epistle, in chapter 1, he describes the daily trials that you and I face, the sufferings of the church, as a testing fire, in a sense. And Revelation chapter 20 describes the end of Satan and his armies as them being cast into a lake of fire. This is terrifying, and it shouldn't be terrifying. It should get us in our hearts to say, Lord, save me. Hide me in your hands. Protect me behind the cross. 
So you might be thinking, well, what exactly is that going to look like? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I know it describes the final judgment of God. There's this big debate in this passage of, is God going to completely destroy this world and then just remake another one out of nothing? Or is he just going to renew it? That's a big question. Um, I lean towards more renewal, but I think the change will be radical enough to be able to call the new heavens and the new earth new. But there will be enough continuity to still call it earth and heaven. Other than that, there's really a lot of speculations. This one word here draws a lot of criticism. This word, in the ESV, it says, and the, heaven, sorry, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That word right there, for those of you who have studied Colossians this year, is the same word in Colossians when Paul talks about beware of philosophy that is according to the elementary principles of the world. It's the same word. Some people translate it as heavenly bodies or kind of angelic beings. And some people take that to mean atoms, the things that make up the universe. Which one is it? I don't know. I think this is a hard passage. Smarter people than me, much smarter people than me, have come to this and left not knowing. And I think there's actually a danger to be found in trying to speculate precisely what the last judgment is going to look like. Because the moment we start to do so, first of all, we step beyond the Lord's word. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what's been revealed belongs to us. And second of all, we start to forget the overall point, which is we need to be holy right now. It's so, e it's so easy, I've done it myself, to step in and be like, ooh, what is this going to look like? Rather than, God, change me now. But this is one thing that we do know for sure from the scriptures. What will survive this fire? Good works. The good works of the saints will survive the fire of judgment. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, the gospel, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I'm talking about Christians. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And this passage, this idea that good works will survive through the judgment, should once again guide you and I as Christians to think, I need to pursue holiness of Christ because he saved me and died for me. Because regardless of what you think about all the other details, that's going to last. That's going to last should give us a godly fear. Judgment will begin with the household of God, Galatians says. And our money, our possessions, our clothes, they will not last. But your holiness will. The time when you read your Bible and no one's around, that'll last. The pondering of Christ when you're alone. Your prayers that you put up for people that they will never know. 
that you prayed for them, that will last. The work that you put in to serve the church of God, that will last. The time and agony as a parent that you put into loving your kids because of Christ, that will last. It's good news. So there will be a fiery destruction, and lastly, there will be a righteous renewal. There are three other passages in the Bible that have this phrase, new heavens and new earth. And I'm going to read them for us real quick. Two of them are pretty long, but this is the last thing that we'll do. So I invite you to please follow along in your Bibles and listen carefully. It's easy when the scriptures read to just kind of zone out. Listen carefully. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Isaiah 65. <clears throat> For behold, I create, this is the Lord talking, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This new heavens and new earth will be a real physical place that we will live in. Not a spiritual heaven, but a heaven on earth, a return to Eden in a sense. The second of the three passages is, just flip over to the next page, Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23. The Lord says, For as the new heavens... And the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. The new heavens and the new earth will be marked by unhindered and unending worship of God. Last passage. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Turn over there, if you will. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We'll stop there. Friends, the greatest gift of the new heavens and the new earth is not the absence of sorrow, It's not the absence of even sin. The greatest gift of the new heavens and the new earth is God himself with us. Righteousness dwells. Who is our righteousness? Christ. The greatest manifestation and teaching of the righteousness of God ever. Jesus himself. We will be there with him. We will see him face to face. He will be with us. We will be his. And since this is true, What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it pierces us to our soul, that it divides between our thoughts and our spirit. Lord, I pray that we all may contemplate this truth. The reality of Christ's return. And Lord, we are not those who look towards it with no hope. We are those who wait eagerly to see our Savior. And yet, Lord, there are those in this world who will see Jesus on that day not as a Savior, but as a judge. And I pray that we may speak this good news, this welcoming to repentance to all. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.